This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, sadly, mate, we did not come back. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and it's almost like I, I didn't really want to listen to last week's show because all of that optimism just feels kind of even more painful in the cold, harsh light of two 1-0 defeats. And I do think that some people may see that we're doing a Q&A today and think, oh, well, they were happy to talk about it when we're winning, but they're not going to dissect it when they're losing. Don't worry. We'll be doing plenty of dissecting of those last two games across the breadth of these questions. So we'll get into everything you want, trust me. Yeah, well, you've given away the surprise there, mate. I, have <laughs> I didn't realise it was a surprise. We talked about it last week, didn't we? Yeah, true. No, I, I just hadn't said it yet. Um, oh. <laughs> but yeah, this, week, this week's episode is, is going to be a Q&A, yeah. And to, to be honest, considering we don't play for another 17 days or so, next week might be a Q&A as well. Um, so for those who haven't submitted the question and still want to, on the YouTube video, I'm going to put a comment underneath the video where you can click the link to this form that you fill in to ask us a question because we'll probably do it again next week. But um, yeah, we've got both had questions sent in by people who've signed up to the newsletter. So this week we're going to do that. There's some Ramadan questions in there, sadly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Mo, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let you start me. So the person who's asked the question, the question and then your answer. Off okay, you go. well... This might be a quite a wild one to start with, but it caught my eye, so I want to discuss it first up. And the question comes from, let me just click across, uh, Stuart Beattie, who asks, if Klopp was to leave in 2026 with only one league title, what do you think his legacy would be classed as? And this is an interesting question for me, because I think a lot of people, as we sit here right now, would feel like that would feel underachieved an underachievement considering how good the team is. And I get that feeling now that we're in it, but his legacy, as in once we have gone beyond the Jurgen Klopp era, is that he's going to be remembered as one of the greatest managers this club has ever had. When you consider where we were when he arrived and the heights for which he took us to, and when you consider across my lifetime, Liverpool have had teams that have been good for short periods of time and then faded away and burnt out spectacularly. He's been able to put good team onto good team onto good team, season after season after season. Yes, we're now in a period where it's looking like that's coming to an end, but that consistency we showed probably from what, 2018 through, if you kind of excuse the COVID injury business, up until last year, that's what, five solid seasons of absolute excellence where we weren't only one of the best teams in England, we were one of the best teams in the world. And I do think that the way Klopp has been able to lead us and what he's done has meant that some of that will continue, some of that reputation, some of that standing, will continue once he's gone simply by the nature of the fact that the players that he built will still be there. And so I think his legacy will be a strong one. I would still like us to win more league titles, so I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, well, what I'll add to that is, although it's okay it's one league title, he's still cleaned up. He's still won everything that he is to win. 
I think the only competition that he hasn't won that he's had the opportunity to win at Liverpool is the Europa League. And that's because we haven't qualified for that for a couple of seasons because we don't really want to. And we lost um, to the final. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we got to the final when we were in it. Yeah. So, and I think also, I think you, you, you've just, you've got to factor in that he, although he's accumulated three 90 plus point Premier League seasons, which is unbelievable and unprecedented for the most part, you have to also throw in there that Klopp's era has just coincided with the Guardiola Manchester City yeah. era, which is just so unfortunate, but is very much just kind of one of them. Um, and City don't have a Champions League as well, so you know we, we do have to factor in that Klopp has he could have won more, and it's it's frustrating that he hasn't yet. I mean, he still might, but um, yeah, I can see where the question's coming from there. To be honest, um, I've got a question from Steve Challen Thomas. <laughs> And I'm sorry, Steve, I'm going to be honest, mate. I'm going to ignore your initial question. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to touch on the second part of his question to use as a segue, actually. Because he's mentioned at the bottom of his question that he's chasing me down in the Analyze Nanfield FPL League. Um, and we did start this at the start of the season. And it's my fault. I haven't really provided anywhere near enough updates as to how the league is going on. So I'm going to do that now just to give a few props to the people who are top of the league and stuff. Um, so we have 774 people in the league. And at the minute, top is Odin Sirst. Second is Richard Pierce. Third is... I can't even pronounce that, I'm honest. His first name, <laughs> <laughs> His first name is Bendik, I know that. Um, I'm not even going to pronounce his surname. Apologies for that one. Um, put, it in the, also, we'll put a top five in the comments afterwards on the yeah, YouTube video. Yeah, we've also got Elvind Elchi. Apologies if I got that one wrong. And in fifth, we've got Daniel Salisbury, who I think has asked us a few questions on the show. Um, I am 26th overall, which is not bad. Um, I've been kind of there all season, to be honest. I've been around 25th all season, which is a bit frustrating, but I'll take it considering the 774 in the league. Uh, other people who've been on the show, Dan Kenneth is 80th at the minute. Uh, Dave Hughes, obviously no longer. My co-host is, is 98th in the league. Christian Walsh is 341st. Um, and Guy Clark is 420th so apologies <laughs> guy i've thrown you under the bus there mate but that's the little analyzing anfield update there but at the end of the season i'll give like a a props to like the top 10 or whatever but that's how we're looking at the minute not bad well, yeah now, I, did you have do you have fpl out of incest well full disclosure i as people would have noticed that my name wasn't read out along there um i decided at the beginning of the season that i wanted to have a year off from fpl because two reasons. One, I wasn't really enjoying it, to be brutally honest with you. It was kind of changing the way I was looking at football for the worse. Like, mm. I was finding myself concentrating. I wasn't watching a game. I was watching two or three players in a game. And it was starting to annoy me. So I thought, let me just have a year off, do a reset, see how I feel about the game. And also, I have so much time doing other things that it was just something I had to, I had to let go of something. Like, there literally isn't enough time yeah. to do. And 
as much as I do remember the points when it was fun, and I do love the idea of being in, in the league with other people and the banter and all of that stuff, I can't 100% say I've missed it, really. <laughs> in all honesty, like, like genuinely, there are, there are things about it, like I say, in terms of how I watched the game. And maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just, I need to not do that so much. But I did find myself kind of like, and not even just the whole, um, if Liverpool are doing well and then someone in my FPL team scores against them, I'm not allowed to be happy, but I kind of am happy. Like, yeah. that's that's a separate thing. I think it was just, yeah, it was just colouring the way I, I was watching football. Maybe it's just because I wasn't very good at it. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, does, it does do a little bit of that, though. Like, last night, I had a few Brighton defenders and um, I wanted Brighton to keep a clean sheet, even though with their win, Brighton now go level on points with Liverpool uh, with a game in hand. So it's not really, it does conflict with you a little bit, like, but uh, next season, Mo, hopefully you'll be involved. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I should probably come back in now because, I mean, that way I'll know for sure either way. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I'm actually going to answer Steve's question because I looked okay. at it and I did actually quite like the idea of it. And obviously you mentioned Brighton there, so it's a nice segue. And this his question was, how many points do you think Liverpool will now need to make the top four? And what are the key games in deciding our fate? Now, this is obviously a two-part question. And I do think the two parts are very interesting. Now, 538, the site that we've used quite a lot, or I particularly use a lot more increasingly, the predictions site that plays out every different scenario over hundreds of years of professional football and comes up with what they think. They are predicting that Spurs get top four with 65 points. Now, I do think that this season is going to be a lower total than in general, but that still feels a little bit low to me. Like, if you're looking back on past seasons, more often than not, you're having to crack 70 points just to get into the top four. I mean, I'm, I think the time, the first time we qualified on the clock, I think we had to get 75 points. So that's a lot. I think, I think 69, I think it's probably a good a number. And if you look where we are now, uh, 69 points, that requires another 27 from our remaining 12 league games. So the easy way to do that is to win nine out of 12. But I mean, life is never quite that simple, is it? Um, so yeah, that's that's a kind of the number I think we're going to need. So we can afford the odds off day, but not very many of them. In terms of what do I think of the key games, um, obviously the week that we have after the international break is what everyone's zeroed in on, away to City, away to Chelsea, at home to Arsenal. I think obviously if we don't win any of those games, then it becomes a massive task. I'd like to think that we can win one and go unbeaten in the other two. It gives us a big, big chance. But to be honest, I think the biggest game is still Spurs at home because they are going to be in it for the long haul. Like, they might have ups and downs like we do, but I do think come the last game of the season, they're going to be there or thereabouts. So if we can put ourselves six points between us and them, because obviously we beat them earlier in the season, then I think that'll go a long way to getting it done. Yeah, I've got a question here, quite an insistent one. Uh, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, Mo. 
Uh, it's from Sheehan Probst. And rumours of Joel Matip leaving the club this summer. For me, he is a very underappreciated player. It got me wondering who was who were some of the most underappreciated players in Liverpool history. Um, yeah, I think generally, I think Liverpool supporters are quite good at recognising who deserves credit and maybe who doesn't. Um, <laughs> but I, I think one of the players who not necessarily was underappreciated, but maybe underrated is probably more of a word. I think uh, Daniel Sturridge comes to mind for me. I think Sturridge was unbelievable on his day, mate. Um, such a quality player and so many facets to his game. Um, really creative, really good in tight spaces. Uh, good finisher, quick, so technical. and um, It was just injuries, weren't it? But I think, yeah. I think Klopp said that at times, I think he, he would have loved to have worked with a fully fit Daniel Sturridge because I think... A player who comes to mind when I come when when I think of like a, a storage kind of profile is is maybe uh, someone like an Obama Young potentially and an Obama Young for a few seasons. Okay, it was only in in the Bundesliga, but you know scoring a, a, a fair few goals every season. I think Sturridge was was comfortably like a twenty Premier League goals a season striker, um, yeah. but he was just never really able to to fulfil that really. But I think Sturridge is a, is a player who I would have loved to have seen him kind of reaches peak in terms of consistency availability. No, I hundred percent agree. I do think I think he had the, the talent to do it all. I think also not only the injuries, but the timings of the injuries were so bad because I think if you remember the season after Suarez left, that was the season when we were going to give him the keys to the attack. Yeah. He was going to be the guy and he was going to lead us for the foreseeable and I was obviously I, I felt like we probably should have done better in terms of replacing Suarez but I do think that Sturridge was a good enough player to have led that team and I do think that if he'd have stayed fit that whole season a lot of things would have been very different I just think that in at that time that that perception did so much to clouds what people think of him so now he's always seen as kind of like it's always Suarez and storage when it should it could very much have been Suarez and storage. They yeah. are, I believe, talent wise, equal. I think in terms of if you want someone to be able to score as many goals, as many different kinds of goals, I think Daniel Sturridge could have done it just as well as Suarez. I do think if we'd have had any more years of them together, I mean it would have been a big problem for everybody. In terms of who else I think is underrated slash underappreciated, um, I think the, our modern team, to be honest, I think most of them do get quite a lot of love because generally we do love them all. And I think that's fair enough. Going back a few years, I think someone like, okay, going back a long way, which is probably <laughs> over the heads of most people to the 90s teams, I do think... For example, Steve McManaman, I think he gets a lot of shit now. But guys, go back and watch him when he was a player. He was unbelievable. I think that's a good show, yeah. Also in that team, two guys who don't get a lot of shouts. Rob Jones, another guy whose career was changed irreparably by injuries. And Michael Thomas, right? Not a lot of people talk about Michael Thomas because of the his story is very much the whole he scored the winner for Arsenal and then he has his goal in the cup final. 
But that team that Roy Evans built, that was so flashy at the top of the pitch, it needed him and John Barnes in the middle to lock it down. And I do think that the job, very, he was very much like a prototype genie in as much as you don't notice him, but he's the, you only notice him when he's not there. He knits everything together. So he's someone who I would say from that era. I also think uh, Lucas Lever is still underrated. Still underrated. And I, I, I love... I don't think that he is celebrated enough, personally. I think his place in our team is lost a little bit because he was either the um, the poor relation in a good team or the best player in our worst teams. And I think that kind of works against him. But yeah, I yeah. love him. I would also throw in, um, I'm not sure if you can say he's underrated nowadays because I think everyone does appreciate now what he does, but... I just think overall, Firmino is an obvious one. I think he's just been so special, but doesn't get the headlines because of the the players around him and what they're doing. So Firmino is one you can throw in there. And one curveball that I will add finally is um, Peter Crouch. I, I think um, Crouch was like a really underrated, so good technically and so good with his link play and things like that. You wouldn't think he was just a standard giant and that was kind of it i think we had heskey as well he was a bit like that just yeah they had, they had more to the games mate than than what people thought at the time i felt um but yeah i don't know there's a few of them hmm. no i think crouch is a good shout and i think strangely enough because everybody likes him as a man it's almost like people just kind of forget they think oh he was in the team for bands it's like no he was in yeah. the team he was a very good striker so no yeah. i think crouch is a very good shout actually Definitely. Yeah, he's like, a, he's like a, a weird take on Giroud, almost, the way he plays. Yeah. I think they, they, they both offer similar things to the team, but because Crouch can look a bit clumsy and stuff like that, mm. he was always just deemed as like a, I don't know, just a bit of an odd, peculiar player, and he was, but he still offered value in, yeah. in a lot of areas. Like, I mean, that, that almost increases value, if you ask me. And, I mean, if we're extending underrated players outside of Liverpool, then Olivier Giroud is a very good shout, because I do think he's massively overrated, underrated even. Yeah. I think. All right. Is it my turn now? It is, yeah. Right. So there's a couple of questions around the same fella, but I'm going to focus in on the one by Jordan Corfiartis. And he asks Do you think Mason Mount is only being targeted as a just in case signing if we are unable to get Jude Bellingham? With Ox, Milner, possibly Phillips, and Kelleher all leaving this summer, how important is it for us to sign homegrown players? Um, well, the first part of that, I don't think he's a just-in-case sign-in. I think that if we're able to get Jude Bellingham, we would still be looking for Mason Mount. I think we would be looking to pair the two, and I would quite like the look of that pairing. In terms of the homegrown question, I do think it matters. I do think at least one of the players, and maybe two, that we bring in are going to have to be homegrown. And... I think there's a certain amount of opportunistic element about Liverpool's pursuit of Mason Mount because obviously it's his own contract situation with Chelsea which has allowed this to happen. But I do think that Liverpool are were always going to be needing to find some homegrown stars. So it helps for sure, but I don't think it's by far the only reason we're targeted him. And I do think that, like I say, if we do end up getting Jude Bellingham, would still be targeting Mason Mount as well. Yeah, I've got a question from 
Jimmy Basketic. I love Trevor. Um, I think that's how you pronounce his name. <laughs> and he, he, he asks, how well do you think Gapo fits in with our squad? And do you see him as a long-term Reds player? Uh, I definitely see him as a long-term Liverpool player, yeah. Because uh, he's 23, I think. We've just signed him. Reasonable fee. And he's, I think he's got a pretty high ceiling as well in terms of what he could become. But in terms of the kind of player he's going to become, I, I still don't overly know. It looks like the plan is for him to kind of become the next Firmino, which um, I'm not sure overly where to stand on that because obviously he progressed as a, a big prospect as a left-sided forward for PSV, cutting yeah. on and using his right and finishes in the far corner like we saw him do against Manchester United. But whether he's quick enough and enough of a threat and behind to that in the Premier League, he remains to be a bit of a question mark there. And last night, for example, against Real Madrid, defensively at least, he was playing as an eight, you know, one, mm-hmm. one of the one of the number eights. So I think so far what we've seen is kind of like a almost like an upgraded version of Minamino in terms of a prof- profile of a player who can just kind of play anywhere, yeah. uh, wherever you need him, and still offer a high level. But it seems to be to me that the the main Objective for him at the minute so far looks like it's going to be you become Firmino. And I think he's got certain elements to his game where he can do that. But I still think he's too easily knocked off the ball Mm. um, compared to Bobby. I don't think he's as much of a connector as Firmino was. But he's got time to, to get there with that. And he offers things Firmino didn't like really solid ball striker and, and he can play out wide like we touched on after the Man United game and he, he can't even potentially play as an eight here as we've seen so so it's a versatile player but it's it, it, it's difficult to outline his path at the minute I think or, or predict his path because Klopp seems to be just almost playing with him like clay in his hands almost to see what he can you know what I mean to see what he can do basically yeah. it's, it's almost like when you've got you know like when a new manager comes into a club and he'll try out different formations and different personnel just to kind of see what he's got. I do get the impression to a certain extent, particularly in this little part of the season between um, for him arriving and and obviously Firmino leaving in the summer. I do think there's very much a kind of a feeling of, okay, let's see where he can fit, what he can do, and then work it out from there. Because obviously, like we said, um, left side foot forward was the role that he excelled in to the point where we wanted to buy him. But we've seen not only is Luis Diaz uh, fantastic in that position, excelling in that position, we've seen from Darwin Nunes that he appears to be looking more dangerous on that left side rather than through the centre. And I wonder how much of that has precipitated this new desire for Cody Gakpo to then be the number nine. Maybe when they brought in Nunes, they're expecting him to do the nine job. It would take his qualities and kind of mould to it. But they've seen him and they've seen that maybe he is more effective doing a different job. So maybe they're thinking, okay, well, maybe Cody Gakpo can do it. And if they think that he can, then obviously that's just another string to his bow. He will still rotate in for a main striker and a left sider but he'll have that added extra of being able to be the deepest of the forwards, if you want, or the, the four, further forward of the midfielders. And that might be something that he can develop into his game over time. The original question, do I see him fitting in? Yes. I think that he was bought 
with one idea in mind, but with the potential to kind of create other ideas and have that versatility. This is why versatility is so important in most of the players that Cops bringing in, because you can have an idea of how you think a player fits into your team, and then you can see the reality and it'll be different. And if your player can only play one way, and it turns out that what you were thinking doesn't happen, you're kind of stuck. Whereas if you've got a guy who's adaptable and think, okay, well, maybe he's not suited to that as we thought. Maybe he can do this. And then you get into a situation where you've got three or four forwards who can all be very good at doing different things. It's great for you and it's a nightmare for opponents. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to see what he's going to become. Um, But I think it's, I'm hoping that this kind of period that we're going to at the minute is a bit like Klopp's first season where when he came in mid-season, a lot of it was just getting to grips with things and toying with different ideas and seeing who can play where. And it wasn't until his first summer where he was then like, right, it's 4-3-3 moving forward. And because before that, in that kind of weird half season, it was very 4-2-3-1, I think. And it was it was different formations and stuff like that. Whereas when he got to the end of that season, he kind of reassessed it was 4-3-3 for the, for the next like six years. And I'm just thinking, I don't know if, if what we're doing now with Gapo is a future thing or if in the summer Klopp's going to look at what he's got, kind of tear it all up, start from scratch and be a bit like, right, we're going to go here or whatever. So, Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Um, well, just to, off the back of that, I think another player who's kind of in that same situation is Fabio Carvalho. I think, yeah. obviously, he's still a little bit positionless within this team. He hasn't really found a home. And the way that the team is reshaped over the summer, the new revolution in midfield, we're going to see who's in where. That will probably lead to more questions about how we're going to play. And then from there, we can find a position for him, personally. That's what yeah. I think. yeah. Right. Um, okay, so this question comes in from Josh A. No relation, I'm hoping. Why does the club seem to be focusing more on Premier League slash Champions League proven players these days rather than taking advantage of cut right moves the clubs like Brighton seem to do? With the Graham formulation that are best transfers, okay, so this is where the, um, ah, here we go, best transfers work 50% of the time. Isn't it better to spend small amounts of money on shrewd transfers? Than risk spending so much on big transfers that while look like short things could fail miserably. Now, this is a very interesting question because yeah. it kind of cuts to the idea of what is value? Where do you find value in the current transfer market? And I personally think it's harder than ever to find value in the transfer market because you look at um, players like Brighton or clubs like Brighton who are able to dip into South American markets and I bring players in without necessarily doing that transition from Europe, first of all. And the reason why they can take more risks on players is because as it stands, they have, well, they have a lower ceiling of what's expected. So a, play, a, a, a player missing out, if you're, if you're spending low mon- amounts on money on players, then you can afford for them to not be quite as good. I still think that Liverpool are in a situation where 
squad places are at a premium. So you do want to have a, a certain amount of surety that a player is coming in is going to be able to give you what you want. But the tricky other thing about that is that Brighton being successful in this model kind of makes it harder for everybody else because everybody wants to be the next player. Everyone wants to get in on their like, And so you'll find clubs who've got players who are even showing a little inkling of talent, suddenly they're being flooded with scouts and suddenly they're getting 25 to 30 million price tags slapped on their head. The example I was given the other day of um, a fellow called Carlos Belaber, who's got a lot of um, people talking about him. He's played at Lille this season, central midfielder, and he looks very good. I mean, you can look at his comp on, on YouTube and you'd be very impressed. And he's got a, a price tag of £30 million after playing 14 first-team games. 14 first-team games. <laughs> so the idea of going to South America and trying to find someone like that becomes a lot more um, exciting, a lot more entertaining. But the flip side to that is work permit rules make it actually harder to find someone. Because if you are going to find someone, they need to be at a certain level. Chelsea have just found that with Andre Santos. So it's not necessarily as easy as that. I think the other thing you find in Latin America and the thing that Brighton were willing to do that we weren't is you find interesting uh, ownership issues around certain players where they are only owned in part by the club that they play for. They're also owned in part by a company or, or, or an investor, let's say, who has put a certain amount into him. And you've got to do dealings with them as well as the club and maybe other people as well. And for a club like Liverpool, up to this point, they've just been like, no, it's not worth it because that's how the price goes up. But it'll be interesting to see if any clubs do start, other than Brighton, do start going into the Latin American market because there probably still are going to be bargains to be had. Yeah, I, I also think every every club is in a different position with, with different goals. And um, if you think of where Liverpool are, Liverpool's status in the, in the food chain and things like that, the expectation on the, on Liverpool's shoulders is to win. You know, you just, just deliver trophies and uh, dominate the sport. And you can shop in the most expensive places and you can acquire the biggest talents. And you 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 basically you've got like a unlimited transfer budget compared to like a, a Norwich or someone like that, you know. So you you've got real you can attack that anywhere in the market basically, but you can really shop at the high end for the most part. Whereas if you think of where Brighton are, the past couple of seasons, they've just finished like about tenth. They're just kind of in the middle of nowhere, really, in that position. And they're probably not yeah. gonna go down. But to get where they wanna go, which you could argue is maybe Europe. From Tony Bloom's perspective, the, obviously the owner of Brighton, it just kind of makes a bit more sense for him to make a few calculated risks, really. He can't go to, like, I don't know, Inter Milan and, and poach Inter Milan's best player or something like that. So it makes sense for him to take a few calculated risks, gambles on these players who are from um, kind of untouched markets with, with, in the hope that they will come, make a big difference, and either be sold for a profit or or make a big difference on the pitch or whatever, like Alexis McAllister, Moises Casado, and, and players like that. So every every club's coming out from a different angle. And although you want some of them Brighton players, the bottom line is Liverpool need to deliver 
at the pinnacle of the sport. Yes. So you can't take too many chances on those players. Um, sometimes you need proven quality. You're right. And I think something that we've said a few times this season, particularly when it comes to midfielders that Liverpool are missing those players in the peak years. We've got a lot of ones who have come out of the peak years, a lot of ones who haven't come into it yet. And sometimes you need a guy to be able to come in and hit the ground running. And sometimes you got to pay for those. With Brighton again as well, I guess you only really need to make turn one five million player into a 75 million pound player. And suddenly you can afford and two or three or four that don't come off. They've only really need one to come off every four or five. Whereas, as you say, Liverpool, we, our hit rate, our required hit rate when it comes to transfers is a lot higher. Yeah, so I've got a question from Ant Mach. And this is another one for you, for you to ship in with, Mo. Uh, he says, what is your most sincerely held yet controversial football opinion? Um... <laughs> Off the top of my head, I don't overly know. I've probably got loads, but what uh, <laughs> <laughs> one that always comes to mind? I I think I don't know how controversial this is to be honest. I, I think Harry Kane is the best striker in the world over the past decade, with the exception of Luis Suarez. If you remove Luis Suarez from the from the uh, agenda or whatever, I don't think there's there's been a better striker than than Harry Kane. I think he's absolutely world-class and um, people will obviously touch on the fact that he's never won anything which I think is incredible for that to be the case that I think that's so unfortunate mm. for him um, but he's just always available consistently available like 30 plus appearances in the Premier League every season um, absolute minimum of like 20-25 goals so good when it comes to constructing moves and engaging and build up playing He's basically like Firmino in the way he engages in like the construction of moves and things like that, helping out his midfield and yeah. ball progression and stuff. But then Robert Lewandowski in the penalty box, like he's unbelievable player and he's super professional and homegrown and all this stuff. So I rate Harry Kane very, very highly, basically. Um, but I'm not sure if that's even that controversial, really. I don't know. Um, I think you see some kind of um, some some kind of people who try to denigrate him, but you suspect sometimes that is just a bit of trolling for engagement. Because genuinely, yeah, he's got to be either one or two. I personally, if you ask me, would I rather have him or Lewandowski in my team? I'd probably still take Lewandowski, but I do think that you're right when you say that he. In terms of the build-up play and stuff like that, he does have attributes Lewandowski doesn't have. Out of interest, though, what is it that Lewandowski has that Kane doesn't? Because I don't think there's anything. <laughs> I well, okay, that's an interesting point because we, we we would think Lewandowski is like an amazing finisher, for example. He is, but like if you use expected goals, which is you know has it's it's not perfect, doesn't like that. But if you use expected goals over the past six Bundesliga seasons including this season, which he's on La Liga. He's overperformed XG by about 5.1 goals, which is which suggests that he's not massively clinical. And and Kane, for example, over the same period, has scored 17.3 goals more than expected. So even when it comes to finishing, hmm. Kane's a better finisher than Lewandowski, well, I, I think. Mean, um, scoring, scoring more than expected doesn't always just mean that they're a better finisher, though, does it? I mean... 
scoring more than expected more than someone else, if you mean. Like, because there are other reasons why that expected goals tally could be lower. But in terms of what he does that Kane doesn't, I think it's interesting you say about his um, appearance record, because I do remember Kane kind of getting the same injury every year that kind of leaves him out for a little period. And I do think consistency of appearance is something that I do think Lewandowski has over him. But it's close. It's very close. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking his personal preference for me. I think yeah. I would rather have Lewandowski. I think the, in terms of different ways of playing, I think he fits all of them. And that's not to say that Kane doesn't. I just think that I'd prefer to have him in some of the others. Okay, what was your... Um... <laughs> this, 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 yeah, this this is where it gets really interesting because I have a feeling that literally this is this is really gonna be one that might get me kicked off the show. <laughs> so when we're talking about individual player awards, player of the season, Ballon d'Or, etc. etc. Hmm. I understand the reasoning behind using goals and assists as a reason to say this player has done well. But using goals and assists as the only reason why some one player deserves an individual award above another player drives me insane. <laughs> For the simple reason that not all goals and assists are the same. Like, they aren't. You can have someone who dribbles through five people, goes from one end of the pitch to the other, then plays a five-yard five square ball, and he gets an assist. Or you can get someone who passes it to someone on the six-yard line. They then do all of that and score. Still counts as an assist. So the stats need context. They always need context. There are so many brilliant things you can do on a football pitch that affects winning and that make you a fantastic player that don't always show up in traditional stat sheets. We are better at stats now. There are You can go deeper. You can find more things in a way that do have more bearing but when someone says how can you say x is better than x x is better than y y had so many goals and assists in x blah, blah, blah. it's like there's more to the game than that there really is i know that goals is how games are decided i get that i'm not being glib about that but i think when you only see that you're missing out on so much of the game yeah i don't think that's conservation at all <laughs> I, think that, I think that's a standard analyzing Anfield opinion that I like to hear, to be honest. Um, it's most of the game. But it, it, insistently, though, out of insist, like, who are you referring to? Is there any specific player? Like, maybe. I, just seen that, like, I don't think there is. I think because it, it would be unfair to say it's all about one person. I think there are lots of times where other different players' arguments have been won or lost because of X, Y, assists. And I mean, and I'm not just saying that because I don't want all of the Messi stands or the Ronaldo stands to come after me. Because it's not, it's more, but it's about more than just those guys. I think Lewandowski is one though, where it's almost as if people think that <clears throat> all he does is goals because all you see are the goal stats. And whenever people talk about him, it, it's like, oh, fantastic goal stats, but he does do more on the pitch. For example, or another example, one that I've already had a lot of uh, interesting opinions about, uh, Erling Haaland's five goals the other day. Erling Haaland scoring five goals in a match is impressive. There is no doubt about that. 
it yeah. took a lot of skill and awareness of the striking position to always be around for the goals. But that five goals, Lionel Messi's five goals against Bayer Leverkusen, yeah. Robert Lewandowski's five goals in nine minutes, was it? I think against Gladbach. Watch those three and tell me that they're all the same because they're absolutely not all the same. Yeah, yeah. I think all of Highland's goals, like four of the five, I think, were in the six-yard box. I think, um, well, certainly three of the five were. Well, four of the uh, five were from set pieces as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I know what you're saying there. I agree with you there. Um, but yeah, we better we better better move on anyway. I mean, we're spending spending a bit of time on this. this <laughs> I think you're, I think you're next, Mo. Yeah, right. This, this is a question that I've kind of been semi avoiding, but I feel like we we probably need to cover it. Uh, it's a question that's come in from Silor, but it's also been the topic of conversation all across social media. Trent Alexander Arnold. Trent's erratic form is well documented this season. He's been targeted by teams even during our successful times. In my opinion, he's even more vulnerable now as he looks heavier and a more bulked up player, which I think makes him slower and less mobile. Remember the famous goal away at Leicester in the title season when he bombed down the wing? I don't see him scoring that goal now. Are there any stats on speed and distance for Trent from the title season to this one to compare? Now, I don't have the stats to hands maybe that's something that we can look up over the course of the um show but the point about him being bigger i do think it's interesting because i don't think it's something that a lot of people have touched on he has noticeably got bigger bulkier over the last i would say two seasons and when it comes to the nature of the jobs that he does i'm not 100 sure it's necessary if you think about the, the ability as a right back to change direction, to be live, to not only to be quick, but to be ma malleable on the pitch and to have to change direction quickly. I do think that his current physique makes those things harder. I don't know whether or not it's it's the, the key to changing around everything, but I do think it's something that makes his job harder. In the general main, like taking on board what um, Carragher was saying on CBS, which I think has been the catalyst for a lot of the chat around Trent. It, basically, for you, if you haven't seen it, Carragher says that when Liverpool are the best team, you can have a Trent. When Liverpool are a little bit lower than the best team and you're having to do more defending, you can't really have Trent. And I don't think that's true. I think you can have Trent. I think what it means is that the guys in front of him have a to be have a different job to do, and you can't tell me that the difference between the way that the guys in front of him are playing now and that title season hasn't affected his play. It has massively affected his play. I think the irony of the whole Trent conversation is that when he struggles defensively. I kind of have more sympathy for him than when he's struggling offensively. And I think last night against Real Madrid, his offensive struggles were more problem than his defensive. Like, yes, Vinicius gave him the business a couple of times. Vinicius gives everyone the business, like literally everybody. And there were a few times where he did it really well. I think he will have come out of this game feeling like he, he didn't get got by Vinicius. There were a couple of times early on where it looked like he was going to try and embarrass him. And he didn't. 
So I feel like he can come out of that okay. There were obviously, there are other elements of the defensive issues with him in terms of the attitude, in terms of the times when it looks like he's given up on the pitch. And that's something that only he can reckon with because I think that we do struggle sometimes with analysing players and how they're feeling based on what we see of them. And I don't think that we're getting enough of that information to make those assessments. But by the same token, there has to be a point when someone in that dressing room takes him aside and said, look, this is bad. Like, these bits can't continue. However else you do of everything else, you can't be physically seen to be giving up or not putting it all in. And I think even if that little bit changes, just that little bit changes where people are less likely to say, oh, look at him, he's not trying. If people can't level that against him, I think all the other noise calms down. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, I don't really know what it is, but it's not really. Um, I don't overly think it's a physical thing to do with bulking up and stuff. And I think his physical numbers will probably be similar to previous years. We can't get them anyway because they're, they're private numbers, basically. They're not available in the public space unless unless you want Bundesliga numbers. For some reason, they allow theirs to be out there. But um, Trent seems more... It's more of a mental thing, I think, with Trent, rather than being unable to do anything physically or I, I like that that Leicester goal. I know what you're saying, but um, I think he, I can still see him scoring that goal. It's it's more it's it's more like a mental thing with him. He, he looks sometimes. I think he has played this season like he just doesn't want to defend. Like he just feel, almost feels like he's a little bit above that, or he's past those days, or he's had enough of doing that, and he just wants to play with the ball, or I don't know, I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can, it can stem from the fact he's like 24, and he's completed the game, <laughs> essentially. And once you complete football, man, you make you start buying stupid players, don't you? You start just kind of like... <laughs> 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 yeah. like I wonder what this guy could do up front. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Um, so I don't know, I don't know what it is. I don't want to go too heavy on him, because... Mm. He's had such a brilliant career and he's an academy graduate and local lad and all that stuff, but it does seem to be a bit, I don't know, lacking a bit of a spark or something, mm. lacking like a bit of a rocker's up his backside or something like that. And sometimes you can get that from competition, which I think Carragher touched on, signing another right-back. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can get that from signing a teammate who he will want to impress, such as a certain Jude Bellingham. Um, but I don't know. Um, I've got a question anyway from uh, Tahir Iqbal, um, if I can find it. He <laughs> <laughs> yeah. asks questions fairly regularly, actually. Um, yeah, I've got it here. So he says, um, let's assume Jürgen was not able to take the team forward in the way he wants and he leaves like next year or whatever. Uh, which candidate, candidates, excluding Pep Linders, do you think best aligned to the FSG strategy, so clock replacements, essentially. Mm. Um, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I think there's a lot of candidates out there that are generally good, and I've said before, what what is a good manager? And I think, for me, a good manager is a, is a coach who is able to take a group of players and basically get them to deliver more than you'd expect in terms of points, performances, goals, goals conceded. 
get a group of players to become more than the sum of their parts. So you want a coach who has got evidence of that behind them, basically a coach who's got who's able to squeeze more out of a group of players than should be realistically possible. And I don't mean short-term bounces, I mean over a decent period of time. Um, so I think Roberto De Zerbi is a really top coach. I think I've been seriously impressed with him since he's gone to Brighton. I even love the way he speaks. I think he's got real authority about him. Love the way he handled the Moises Casado transfer situation. Yep, yep. His style of football is really, really pleasing on the eye and it, the absolutely tall Liverpool's shreds not long ago. Uh, the 3-0 away from home, I think it was. So I've been impressed with him. Uh, Luis Enrique is a coach I've always liked. Uh, Minicio Pochettino has got Evidence behind him of getting the team to overperform when he was at Spurs in particular. Um, another name that I've seen who I've actually seen a lot of people kind of turn the nose up at, but I think it's a little bit um, almost ignorant because of where he is and what his name is. But Ange Postacoglu, I think, is a, is a player who should be <laughs> kind of like in the frame-ish. I think he's a, he, he, he is very clop. He's kind of the clop of Scotland at the minute. Um, <laughs> and his, his, his style of play is very, very intense. And he seems very modern in his ideas and uh, almost a bit radical in the way he, the way he approaches the game. And um, Yeah, I'm a big fan of him. I think he's doing well. Whether he can make a big step from like um, Celtic to, to Liverpool, like that is a, it's obviously a huge move. And, there's not a lot of evidence behind them, considering it is just Celtic, and it was previously, I think, the J League. Yeah. Um, but intensity wise and style of play wise, personality wise, and things, he fits the bill. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any any others off the top of your head, Mo, that you can think of. Um, well, I would say that Deserbi and Luis Enrique are the two that I would have said as well. Yeah. Um, another name, a couple of names I'd throw in. I do like the look of Andoni Iriola. Uh, Rayo Vallecano, I think, again, in terms of being a guy with a very set philosophy, but someone who seems very able to get the best out of every single guy under his under his power, he's showing real promise. In terms of the, the philosophy, the system, maybe above them, i.e. FSG, we can't discount Thomas Frank. I mm. do think when you think about the way he goes about football, the way he goes about scouting, the way he goes about motivating his players. I think that there's a lot of echoes of Klopp with him. I do think it's kind of overplayed sometimes just because of how he sounds and people aren't really digging into the detail. But I do think he has the tactical nous and the personality to lead a top club. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is a name that's flowered around whenever the time comes. But I think in terms of a profile, I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't necessarily a guy who's won a big trophy before. Like in the way you see some clubs, you say that there needs to be a big name manager because of all the big personalities in the dressing room, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's the case with us. I think there's enough going on at Liverpool that sets the tone. You don't necessarily need a manager on top of all of that. So I think if a guy comes in with good ideas and a good strategy and, and he's able to impart those ideas onto the club, rest of the club, that's really all you need. 
Amazing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, one other name I'll throw in there cautiously, and I, again, it'd be interesting to get your your views on this one. Would be uh, Thomas Tuchel. Um, obviously a controversial figure, and he's been at Chelsea as well, which is never a nice thing. But over the course of his career, he does have evidence behind him to really squeeze the life out of his players. And he absolutely <laughs> for the period at Chelsea, he really did transform them and turn them into a really difficult team to play against. While he was at PSG, he did get them to the final. I think they lost against Bayern Munich. But I don't really think any other coaches got as close to getting PSG their big famous Champions League. No. And when he when he was at Dortmund after Klopp, funny enough he did he has succeeded Klopp, hasn't he, actually in the past. But when he did succeed Klopp at Dortmund, for a period again he did really, really well and they were playing some really good stuff. And I, I love the way he talked, of the way he speaks about the game and stuff. So I'm a big fan of Thomas Tuchel. But I'm also aware that he it can go sour very quickly, I think, with him. Um, <laughs> and you just don't really want that circus, do you? But he's a top coach, though. He is a top coach. Um, he is... I think you were right to say that he's the best manager PSG have had, I think, in the last 10 years. I think he's. A, you could arguably say that he was one of the best managers Chelsea have had in that same period as well. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think he's, act, he's tactically superb as well. Yes, but he has... The chemistry has to be right and has to remain right. It's interesting you mentioned Dortmund. He actually replaced Klopp at Mainz as well. Yeah. Like, it would literally be the third time he's done it, which I think personally is probably enough to kind of rule it out. I think that, that as much as they're obviously friends and stuff, I do think it would be probably a bit too weird for him to step right back into his shoes again. I also think that by the time it comes around, he probably will already have another job because I do think he's rightly one of the most in-demand managers around. Another interesting name to throw in because we don't know what we're, we're, what time this is going to be and when we'll be, Julian Nagelsmann, currently yeah. manager of Bayern Munich. Someone yeah. else who's, who's very much got a, a good philosophy and a good uh, tactical framework. And he's got very much, very much someone who believes that they can um, do the chop job. So if you did want a personality manager, I think he might well be the guy. Yeah, I think it would just have to be a profile of of coach who is like attack minded, you know, attacking football and um, has got some form of possession game, but is going to be proactive and, and pressing and things like that. But ideally, considering it's Liverpool, like Klopp did also have like more than 10 years of evidence behind him to, to, yeah. to suggest that he's a, a proper talent and he's a, he's got the proof behind him because as I said earlier when it comes to transfer targets and Brighton and stuff Liverpool just aren't really, really in a position where they have to take a chance on this kind of figure they can just kind of approach the best candidate for the role it happened to be Klopp a few years ago but Liverpool need to get someone who, who is basically proven. Another name maybe is uh, Luciano Spalletti uh, mm-hmm. at, at Napoli. Obviously, they're, I think they're 17, 18 points in front in, in Serie A at the moment. And I think his teams generally play really good football. I don't know if he speaks English, but I don't know. There's a fair few coaches out there who are doing really well and who I'm sure Liverpool are keeping an eye on. Yeah, I mean, Spurs is quite combustible. <laughs> I think he's another yeah. guy who's there for a good time, not a long time. But I mean, <laughs> you never know, it might be that good a time that he ends up staying around, who knows. 
Yeah, but I think the big thing though is of of all the coaches out there, if you look at the whole landscape, the the guy who's arguably unrivaled when it comes to getting the most out of a group of players, getting them to overperform, getting them to deliver more than realistically seems possible, is Jurgen Klopp. So that's why when you've got this guy in the door, you let him stay until he wants to leave. Because yeah. although he's not doing it now, and I don't think it's been his best season, he has proven an, a, like a, a special ability to just get players to do what they shouldn't be able to do. Um, and he's just really good at it. It's like a sponge. You're just squeezing at the life out of the sponge and just getting as much as possible from it. And if you think of how many players at Liverpool he's done that with, I can only really think of like one or two where you can look at and think, they didn't really fulfil the potential. I think Ox is probably one. Mm. Um, maybe Naby. But other than that, everyone's prospered under Klopp. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting topic thinking about these successes and stuff like that. But the bottom line is we, we do want the guy in charge now to stay. We want him to get it right. Very much so. And I do think as well, in terms of some of the things that we sometimes get at him for, such as substitutions, then obviously the people he pre- the the freshening up can happen in the coaching staff around him, different voices and those kind of things. And also in terms of someone who's been alongside him and absorbed everything from him, like a sponge, doesn't necessarily mean that that sponge will be the perfect person to take over, because yeah. you can know all the same things that he says, but your voice is still a different voice. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily mean that people respond to the same words in the same way. Yeah, well, we've we've done about fifty six minutes there, um, so we've got we've, as usual, as always, we've still got loads of questions to get through, um, which we will probably do next week. Um, and as I said on the YouTube video, I'm going to put the form underneath in the comments for people who want to add more questions. <laughs> but there's every chance we won't get to it, so make sure it's a good one. The good ones will come out quicker, I assume. Um, so I'll try and ask good questions. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, thanks for joining us, mate. No problem. See you all again soon. Yeah, we'll be back next week, so do tune in then. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.